we are able to be significantly more functional than most people think. There's this modern concept that human, you know, you're born with your genes and you're just stuck being like that. But of course you can change that through diet, through exercise. But again, I believe that our, our light exposure, exposure to sun is one of the absolute number you know, top top three, top five factors, I think it's it's number one, that, that can allow us to basically function as a significantly higher being. In, you know, in other words, turning on parts of our brain that in some way that are dormant just by being exposed to the light. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host Seamland and our guest today is Matt Maruka. Matt is the CEO and founder of Raw Optics, which is a company that educates people about the effects of light on health. Before I begin the show, I want to let you know that you can also get a 10% discount on Raw Optics glasses if you head over to the show notes and you use the code SEAMLUND at rawoptics.com. I'm going to leave the link in the show notes. But other than that, let's begin with the show. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sim. How's it going? It's uh, going really good. <laughs> Unfortunately, like we discussed uh, before, that uh, it isn't that cold as it is uh, usually in here in Estonia during the winter. But uh, otherwise, I'm doing uh, marvelous. How about you? Doing great. Yeah, I just honestly, I'm very fortunate. I'm in Mexico right now. And <laughs> I just was in the it's like the calmest ocean day that I've had. So the water was perfect. And I was just in the sun just getting cooked. So I have to say I'm very fortunate today. <laughs> well, yeah, like, uh, we we usually don't really get any sunlight for weeks upon end here <laughs> at this time of the year. So it's like pretty, pretty much gray and this, you know, smog and uh, cloudy and, uh, you know, not a lot of sunlight at all. So I have to be, I'm kind of, kind of jealous of you at the moment. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Um, yeah, it's an interesting, of course, I figure we'll go some, somewhere in that direction with our discussion of how like so many cultures have lived in places without you know, much sunlight for very long periods of the year, and they do quite all right. At least they have until maybe recently. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah there's definitely def stuff you can do. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely talk a lot about it. Uh, but basically, like you and I, we have like quite a lot of uh, mutual biohacking friends, and uh, we actually we've uh, met a few times over the last year, uh, several times. Uh, at these different conferences and uh, the last time we, we met was in the health optimization summit in uh, london so uh you know you, you also gave a speech out there so what was your speech about and uh, what did it cover yeah so i was talking about the how i believe that the biggest driving factor behind this chronic disease epidemic we're facing today is the transition to an indoor lifestyle an indoor sun deficient technology-based lifestyle. And I sort of came to believe that through my own experiences and attempting to improve my health with diet and getting some significant improvement, but sort of hitting a wall in some sense and eventually learning about mitochondria, which of course you're talking about a lot now, and autophagy, the importance of sleep, the importance of healthy circadian rhythms, and sort of seeing that there's this whole additional level, if, you, if, you, if we can say that, to, to health. That, that just isn't commonly acknowledged or known about in, in the, you know, 
mitochondrial function, circadian rhythms and sleep and how if these are destroyed, it can be very challenging for someone to achieve optimal health, even if they're on the, the healthiest ketogenic or carnivore diet, for example. Hmm. Yeah, so kind of underrated in a sense that uh, a lot of people don't pay much attention to the sleep. And uh, one of the most uh, important regulators of your sleep is light and uh, the circadian rhythms. So it's kind of, uh, most people don't really uh, pay attention to it and they aren't even aware how big of an impact it actually can have in, in, in people's health. Yeah, absolutely. Like right, right on the spot there because again, for someone who's healthy, who lives in a good environment, who's physically active and, you know, lives in nature, grew up in a healthy place, they can, for example, get on a really healthy diet and probably have a very significant benefit in their health as can, as can anyone. But for example, if you take someone who is a, a kid, a teenager, kind of like I was, who, for example, plays video games a lot, like I did, or spends a ton of time on the TV, or doesn't go outside much, doesn't have healthy exercise, they can get a good benefit from being on a diet that doesn't have processed food. But the systems that these diets typically rely on are the innate capacity of the body to heal itself. So a lot of the time, you know, you remove the, you remove the toxic foods, you add the good foods, and then you just kind of count on the body to do the rest. And the problem that's not taken into account, I believe, in many of the diets today is that because of the lifestyle we've created, these systems, which were otherwise working well, essentially are not working well anymore. And so someone like me, again, could get on a really healthy diet with lots of bone broth and meat and seafood and vegetables and so on and just not make the progress that other people are making. And that, that's why I feel like this is so relevant because so many people say, oh, it's, it's all the diets are so individual and varies from person to person. But they're, you know, I, I believe it has a, most to do with those people's mitochondrial function and their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, like the mitochondria themselves are like the foundation to uh, your life or your existence as a human being. Like without the mitochondria, you would, you would basically die and you wouldn't be able to like uh, sustain yourself. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The whole story of, of mitochondria and how we, you know, how they merged with a, another ancient bacteria, apparently, you know, two, two and a half billion years ago. And because of that merging of these mitochondria or these bacteria, complex life was able to essentially evolve. Mm -hmm. Can you like elaborate a little bit about that as well? Like how, do, how did the mitochondria uh, help uh, an organism to kind of live and uh, create energy? Yeah, absolutely. So I just closed my uh, back <laughs> because there's uh, some guy blowing a leaf blower nearby. So <laughs> basically, yeah, with the mitochondria, it, it does help actually to touch a little bit on, on the history of, of how they came together and how, you know, that merger did allow for endosymbiosis, but I'm going to close my window too. One second. All right. So usually I leave my windows open because then the full spectrum of light can come in and I can get that benefit. But when this, when someone's doing yard work nearby, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. less optimal for a podcast. So as far as, yeah, the mitochondrial merger goes, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the story, but maybe your listeners aren't. So life began in these, in these, apparently in these alkaline hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean a long time ago, 
where there was this physical process where ocean water would seep very deep into the earth. And because of the rock and the minerals down there, the ocean water would become very alkaline. And then it would return to the surface and meet with the ocean water, which especially relative to this alkaline fluid was very acidic. And so that, that just means there's a difference in the uh, amount of protons in that water, alkaline versus acidic. And that is what we could call a proton gradient. And inside of these alkaline vents, these big sort of rock structures that protrude out of the ocean floor, there's tiny little pores where this alkaline fluid would meet the acidic fluid. And all of these, there were these molecules that were coming up from within the earth as well, carbon and hydrogen and whatnot. And just in a physical way, not biological yet, there was just this physical ongoing reaction occurring where carbons and hydrogens were being basically fused or bonded together with the energy that was physically available in this natural proton gradient that was existing in these events. And this was just a natural physical process happening in, in the earth. But over time, these carbon and hydrogen based structures began to sort of become just that actual structures and eventually began to sort of self-replicate and eventually move onward out of these vents and become what life is now where it became a sort of self-repeating reaction that was sparked at these vents. And so if anyone wants to read more and learn more about the depth of that, there's this researcher, Dr. Nick Lane from the University College of London, who you might even want to have on your podcast at some point if, if you can get him. He's really total genius, but he can describe these processes because he's done all the research and even replicated these reactions. But so these first life forms were just basic bacteria at a certain, you know, at a certain point, and they depended on the use of these proton gradients that they had basically figured out how to continue to replicate just within themselves. And that's how all life is, is living just on the simple concept of having more protons on one side of a membrane, less on the other side, and then allowing them to flow through this ATP synthase, causing it to spin and then generating ATP. That's one of the things that Nick Lane and his team have shown is consistent across all living organisms for all of time. Mm -hmm. So they assume that the last universal common ancestor, which they shortened to LUCA, last universal common ancestor, had these, these key factors was it used proton gradients to generate energy. It uses the ATP synthase and it has these proteins that we now have in our mitochondria that basically funnel electrons and use a, there's always a, what they call a redox couple. So there's two molecules, one which donates electrons and one which accepts the electrons. And we steal all the energy that's occurring in that donate, donating and accepting process and use that basically to push protons to one side of a membrane, and then we force them to flow back down through ATPase. So anyhow, mm -hmm. this is what life was doing, and mitochondria, or the precursors of mitochondria, were particularly efficient at doing this process, very good at generating energy, and they used oxygen as their electron acceptor. And so the, the task of any of these living organisms was to basically, generally, they spend the majority of their energy, according to, for example, Dr. Doug Wallace, a researcher from Philadelphia who studies mitochondria, these organisms, primitive bacteria, and still bacteria today, spend the, the largest portion of their energy on just 
maintaining and copying and transcribing their DNA. So mm -hmm. the process of basically maintaining the genome and then protein synthesis that goes along with that. It's very energy expensive. And again, I think this, this ties kind of interestingly and nicely to autophagy because part of what, what you're, I believe, at least from my understanding, you know, really focused on is how can we minimize the tax that we're putting onto our biological systems so that our cells can sort of basically live longer and function better, you know, so that we don't have to constantly make new proteins. We can repair mm -hmm. them as they stand. So that's, yeah. that's a really energy expensive process. And so what happened was if, imagine if you have like hundreds of these mitochondria, these independent bacteria just existing, each, every single one of them is carrying out this process of containing its genome, replicating its genome, transcribing its genome and making those proteins and basically taking care of itself as an entire unit. So what happened was these oxidative cyanobacteria, the precursors to mitochondria, sort of made like an evolutionary deal with this other type of bacteria called an archaeobacteria, where the archaeobacteria would take all of the genes from these mitochondria, put it in a common repository and just keep two copies two copies instead of one so that we could have this sexual reproduction and confer the benefit of switching it with every generation or mixing them in. But that way now these mitochondria, these oxidative cyanobacteria, instead of maintaining each, for example, something like 1500 genes, they now only kept about 13 each of their genes. So the best way to put this is imagine if you walk into like a, a room and there's a bunch of students all working on the same problem but they're all working on it individually. It would be a lot more efficient, for example, if you were to just take the first kid to figure out the problem and copy it across all of the rest of them instead of having them each reach the solution by themselves. And that's sort of what, what happened when we consolidated all of those genes for building the mitochondria into that one nucleus. Now all of the mitochondria, the majority of their energy expenditure is now freed up and that is able to basically contribute to all kinds of processes, so like complexification. So now we have this essentially super cell, which has one main host cell with hundreds or even thousands of these sort of slaves or subservient organisms that basically just produce energy, but they produce the energy and the host takes care of getting in all the nutrients. And so the thing, the reason, you know, I go through that whole story is because that merger of, of a cell that came together that is what allowed all complex life. So all the plants I'm looking out right outside my back doors right now, there's all these plants. That's obviously complex yeast, fungus, animals, you know, all of that is dependent on this merger of mitochondria providing that energy source that allowed us to become more complex. And if it weren't for that merger and mitochondria providing that energy, we would have been limited to the basically size complexity and function of bacteria for all of biological eternity un until mm. something similar would have happened. So it's exactly what you said. Like we are completely, not just as humans, but all multicellular life and even all eukaryotic life, which isn't all multicellular is dependent on this, this, these mitochondria as our energy generators, mm. like a hundred percent. And so if they don't mm. work well, then we're not going to work well. And if they work really well, then we're going to work well. Hmm. So it's like uh, almost that uh, these more complex life forms are just better, uh, or the mitochondria are more advanced in a way, like compared compared to compared to plants or compared to uh, single cell organisms. 
I, I don't know if I would say if our mitochondria are more advanced. I, I would say that as far as I understand it, we've figured out different ways to take advantage of the niches in the environment. So for example, like plants, they don't have to really do anything except just hang around and collect sunlight, you know? So they've kind of, I actually have thought about it sometimes like plants have a pretty sweet deal. Like they pretty much just get to hang out all the time and chill in the sun, which actually sounds like an all right life. If you ask me, um, you know, so as far as I understand, it just is that certain organisms went to fit certain niches. And as you know, the random mutations, accumulated certain organisms became for example more adapted to to one type of thing one type of niche and certain organisms took tor towards another and for example humans like before the extinction of the dinosaurs we were you know a mammalian ancestor that was sort of like a big rodent in the ground and then when the asteroid struck on the yucatan peninsula which is where i am in mexico now um it, you know then the dinosaurs all died because they were cold-blooded and the sun was blocked out for a while and so we having this ability to burn our fat to stay warm throughout the winter as these mammalian ancestors, that, it, that it, uh, mutation became advantageous for that period. And then after the, you know, I guess the extinction event was over, the, the mammals kind of went to cover the whole, whole earth. So I don't know if I would say that our mitochondria are necessarily more advanced, but I would say definitely our ability to capture and utilize energy from the environment is right. is yeah optimized and the higher you go up the food chain that's probably true you know yeah yeah that's that's what i kind of meant in in a sense that the uh you know plants themselves they can only get the you know sunlight and the nitrogen from their soil and such but humans we get like we get to eat the plants and uh, we get to eat the uh, other animals uh, that have uh, done a similar way, but on a like a like a lower step hold or a lower threshold in a way. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? If you put it in that context, it is. I get exactly what you're saying. It's totally. It's just like that. I mean, we can, for example, one organism like a cow can spend its whole life basically eating grass and turning that into meat. And then humans, we don't have to spend all day eating grass. We can just kill the cow that spent its whole life eating grass and turning that into valuable proteins. So now we don't have to expend all the energy to get all those proteins. We just have them pre-made for us. And then we can spend the rest of our time thinking, thinking about how to get a better hunt, thinking about how to ensure our survival more. So yeah, in a way we are at the, I mean, for sure right now, humans are at the top of, you know, biological evolution on earth it might not be like this forever but yeah. right now we're definitely we're definitely at the top and that's part of the issue is we're killing ourselves we've gotten so smart we've configured out how, how to control our environment so much that that's sort of the thing that's that's really killing us and that's sort of why this subject interests me so much the things we don't even realize you know yeah that's for sure so how does the light fit into it like why don't we just uh sit in a sun like plants and get our energy that way yeah, that's a fantastic question. So as far as I understand, in order to reach, um, this, like you said, this, you know, a certain level of complexity, it does require the ability to consume other animals, for example, to consume protein. Well, you know, some people would, would argue against this because there are people who have lived a whole lifetime be being vegan. So we don't necessarily need, need to consume other animals, although um, maybe consuming all plants isn't the healthiest option. 
But what I mean to say is in order to reach this level of complexity or this level of where we are right now as an organism, it did require the consumption of external organic matter. So in other words, like a plant, like you said, they can literally, you know, make themselves out of thin air, out of carbon dioxide, water, and the soil, the nutrients in the soil. But as a result, they are limited in their complexity and their ability to do certain things. Like they don't have a big brain or even a really central nervous system like we do uh, and so on, you know? So yes, to, I, I would say, I believe to past to pass a certain point in biological evolution for organisms to become more and more complex, it did require the consumption of other organisms which have spent their whole life doing that. So we can and do get a lot of energy from sunlight if, if we're in the sun, but we're dependent on mm -hmm. generally consuming some organic matter and, you know, basically condensed sunlight from you know a plant for example a banana or something like that has been taking this energy from the sun for maybe an entire season and we can basically consume all of those calories in one quick meal mm -hmm. so that's yeah that's sort of that's sort of the deal there are people who claim to be breatharians who basically live off of sunlight water air and prana so or chi this vital energy and i do i do believe that that is possible based on what i've learned but i think you'd have to be like really really dialed in like super healthy super connected to nature very connected to your breath and your energy and even then these people who do this it seems like they'll eat for example you know once a week a couple times a month right, right. and you know so it's like i think it's possible and you would, you know, you're the, you're the main fasting guy. So you would probably <laughs> see that that's possible too. Well, if they eat like once a week, then they can still pull it off as long as they're like, uh, not, uh, doing a lot of physical things. Like they're probably just, you know, meditating and uh, vegetating there <laughs> like plants. <laughs> vegetating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Meditating. Exactly. Yeah. You can just sit and not use a lot of energy. I think yeah, it's possible. Sure. Uh, but so, what, what, what about the, the aspect that you said? that a lot of the modern diseases are caused by just living indoors and not getting enough uh, sunlight. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. So back to the story of, uh, of life. One thing that is really interesting is that I didn't actually mention is that in the first life forms, the, let's say the energy that was pushing the reactions that were occurring there was not from the sun, but it was actually from the molten core or the, yeah the molten layer of the earth's inside so all the the very hot water at the surface of the ocean that was what was causing the flow of these uh, different liquids mm -hmm. so life technically arose without sunlight it arose from a different form of light infrared down at the surface of the ocean however it's very clear that as life came to the surface and was exposed to the sun we began to take advantage because again, like that's sort of how life works, obviously, is that we're taking advantage of energy sources and using them to, to build complexity and build structures and whatnot. And so when we came in contact with the sun, it became a, let's say no brainer biologically to take advantage of that. And organisms began to develop these circadian rhythms, which are these biological clocks that obviously follow well circa means approximately in latin mm -hmm. and diaz means a day so approximately one day these rhythms and they called it that of course because when they first saw them they're saying oh wow you know this this sleep cycle that the body has this melatonin cycle 
this cortisol cycle. They all follow approximately a 24-hour rhythm in a, in a healthy person. And it turns out that almost all living organisms today, even the ones that are at the bottom of the ocean, actually have some form of a circadian rhythm. So even the ones in total darkness, which is very interesting, I would presume that the ones that the organisms that now cover the, the, the depths of the ocean floor were at some point that they did evolve from organisms that became more complex, possibly further up in the ocean, maybe closer to the light. But again, that's just pure speculation. So anyhow, because I don't see how, how else they would have, you know, circadian rhythms and these clocks that they're claiming are present in every organism now. But nonetheless, so for humans and, and plants and other animals that live either, you know, closer to the light in the ocean or now on the surface of the continents, we began to innovate a ton of different functions driven by light. So, you know, there's lots of bacteria, of course, that are photosynthetic. There's not really solid evidence as to whether we descend from bacteria that were actually photosynthetic. But even though that's not, um, that's not very clear within the science, it can definitely, it can be said that the organisms that we evolved from were being affected by the sun's light. And so, you know, it was, it was sort of present and it was being, how can we just say it was just present in the environment and being utilized for energy and in, in certain ways we can presume. But anyway, that's mostly conjecture. Anything about like what exactly did we evolve from? It's, it's much clearer just once you fast forward to actually humans as we exist today. For example, if you look at vitamin D synthesis, this is a, a process that sure we can consume external vitamin D from certain, you know, fish and that kind of thing. But the evidence is pretty clear that it's nowhere near as effective and utilized in the body when we take vitamin D supplements, for example, as when we actually get vitamin D created from ultraviolet light on our skin. So that's one process that's very well known that has been innovated and optimized by sunlight. But others that we can look at, for example, from red and near infrared light is the increase in ATP synthesis in the mitochondria. So just by shining red light on the mitochondria, it improves the function of cytochrome 4 or terminal, yeah, cytochrome 4 in the mitochondria, which is one of the proteins on the electron chain where we generate our energy. And just, again, just near-infrared light improves the function of that process, allowing us to make more ATP without changing any other variables. This has been tested so many times now that, of course, you know, like Juve and all these other companies are basing their products around this, this research. Mm -hmm. And that, that to me is, is a huge indicator of just how important light has been for not just humans, but pretty much all animal and plant life. Cause all animal and plant life and all organisms with mitochondria have these same proteins in the mitochondria that, that allow us to generate energy. And so it, it it's pretty clear that that's, um, you know, extends across all the, organisms with with mitochondria at least in my view and so that's you know the there's the ultraviolet leading to vitamin d synthesis infrared and red light improving mitochondrial function there's huge amounts of research on how light for example drives the formation of what we could call structured water you may have even interviewed mm -hmm. dr gerald pollack before or spoken with him he's he's a researcher studying how water in this in the body in the cells isn't just like in a glass it's structured and has this very unique ability to store energy and carry electrical charge. So blue light, for example, we know as well, 
drives the circadian rhythm, the biologic clock through these unique non-visual receptors in our eye. And then that controls the secretion of so many different hormones in our body. You know, ultraviolet light has also been linked to increased production of serotonin in our brain, which also leads to increased production of melatonin. So, and, you know, there's research done on people who are blind, who have cataracts before and after they have their cataracts taken out and before they have their cataracts taken out when their eye is covered, essentially the light can't pass through properly. They have really abnormal metabolites in their urine of their hormones and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then when they removed these cataracts, this was, these are experiments done throughout the 1900s when they would remove the cataracts, their hormones and metabolites would significantly improve to those closer to a healthy person. So just impeding the passage of light through the eye, the proper passage of light can have a significant impact on systems in the body that aren't even completely understood today. But the, the sort of uh, amount of, of, of research and studies they were able to do and see how light passing through the eye is able to affect the kidneys, the liver, the brain, a bunch yeah. of, you know, it's pretty shocking. So I guess the best way to put your question is it's clear now that we have so many systems evolved that are directly affected by light, not indirectly via food, but directly via our eye and our skin exposure. Yeah. So when we transition to this indoor lifestyle where we're just basically maybe eating food still, but no longer getting the sun as, a, as another primary source of energy, a lot of processes in the body that are really important in metabolism just start to slowly decline in their function, eventually we start to see, you know, the pre presentation of these things that we're calling diseases, but we just mm -hmm. don't have enough proper energy generation, I believe, to carry out normal functions. And so we're failing from the inside out, unlike the old diseases, which would kill us from the outside in like bacteria and viruses, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, the circadian rhythms are almost like just these adaptations to uh, the changes in your environment, especially like the changes in the light and changes in temperature, seasonality and uh, movement. And so the body would kind of prepare for these changes because as a living organism, you're always between this trade-off of, you know, repairing yourself, uh, building new tissue and growing as well as replicating, etc. So you can't really <laughs> randomly start uh, replicating or randomly start repairing your tissue if you're in this very unfavorable environment. So that's why uh, the circadian rhythms or the light, for example, these different signals, they send the message to the body that, okay, this is the time to do this, whether that be this is the time to be active or this is the time to sleep. And uh, the light is just uh, the kind of the most important signal in uh, regulating all the circadian uh, rhythms and the the body itself or the, all the organs and every cell, uh, it has their own uh, circadian clock that is uh, uh, controlled by the, like, the master clock inside the brain. And the light is uh, sending the signal to the master clock, which then sends the signal to all the other clocks in your pancreas and in your heart and in your liver and so on. So it's like a, it's like a coordination uh, effort in a sense that the body has to kind of synchronize itself uh, with uh, the master clock and uh, with the environment that it's uh, finding itself in. Yeah, that's very, very well put. I mean, absolutely. Like an interesting uh, concept to, to propose is that I believe that consciousness, you know, our state of wakeful awareness that we have is 
is essentially powered by the sun and powered by the light of the sun. And of course, if you look at the physics of life and, and, you know, for example, if you have, um, if you have someone who is starving to death or basically dead, of course they don't have consciousness. And so what I, what I mean to say is obviously consciousness is a process that requires energy. You know, the, the Mm -hmm. state of being awake requires energy and whether the energy is coming directly from the sun or from our food, it is still coming from the sun in, in an indirect or direct way. So that alone, the claim itself that consciousness is powered by light isn't, isn't controversial in any sense. But specifically what I mean is the fact that we are diurnal as opposed to nocturnal animals, we're awake during the day. And if we look at, for example, nocturnal animals like owls and certain other animals, they tend again, this is, this is just my observation. They tend not to be as complex, you know, what I'm, so what I'm trying to say is that I believe that the animals that are awake during the day and diurnal, at least humans in particular have this capacity to be significantly or not. Yeah. Significantly more complex because we are exposed to the full spectrum of the light of the sun, which allows us to basically take advantage of more of the energy in the environment and become more complex. And then at night, of course, like you were sort of touching on, that's our time where we go in and we regenerate ourselves and we sleep and we heal mm-hmm. and whatnot. And of course, there is a niche within you know, evolution for certain animals to come out while other animals are sleeping. Mm-hmm. But in order for our level of complexity, it does require exposure to sunlight. And so, for example, if you take a human, and this, this is one, one really easy way to look at this, is if you take a human and turn them into a nocturnal or try to turn them into a nocturnal animal, their body actually starts to sh- shut down, actually mm-hmm. often fairly, fairly quickly. So anyone who is on working night shifts, mm-hmm. it is so taxing on the body that they know that they can't do it for more than a week or two at a time. You know, like it is, it is so hard. And again, I believe that's because the evidence is very clear, actually, that that's because we're not getting the spectrum of, of light that powers our body during the day when we're supposed to be awake. And then, of course, we're putting a huge stress and demand on our body at night when we're supposed to be regenerating when we don't have the energy from the light that's supposed to be powering that, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, like it's so true. Like night shift is going to uh, disrupt the circadian rhythms and that's just going to you know, cause more oxidative stress and derail all the other physiological processes inside the body because, uh, you know, energy production and uh, just general health is uh, controlled by these uh, diurnal rhythms. And uh, like you said, humans are supposed to be diurnal, like we're not supposed to be awake during the night, or at least like uh, for too long. And uh, we're supposed to get like the daily daily sunlight exposure as well to kind of regulate these rhythms. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I believe that humans can be so much more functional than we currently are. And what I mean by that is that the scale of existence, for example, of, of someone who is considered biologically alive as a human being can go from someone who is on a hospital bed, basically in a vegetable state, but they could still say, okay, that person's biologically alive because sure, their heart's beating, you know, electrons are still flowing across their mitochondrial membranes. And so they're technically alive. And then you can look at someone like Usain Bolt or some person who is just an absolute specimen or, for example, a monk who's 
you know, meditating all day and they're in a, in a state of pure bliss and tranquility. Like there, what I'm trying to say is there's a bit, very big range of, of what we call alive in humanity. Mm-hmm. And when we're exposed to the light of the sun, because it affects so many processes in the body, like those that we've mentioned already, and many others that, for example, aren't as well studied, but are definitely known about, for example, the exposure there, you know, different enzymes and reactions throughout the body, different proteins, and so on, have absorption peaks or yeah, absorption spectrums of certain light. In other words, certain proteins, certain enzymes, and so on, absorb light in different ranges. And when that light is present for those molecules, in other words, if we're just out in the full spectrum of sunlight, we're getting all of those spectrums of light, those reactions occur more quickly. So there's lots of processes in the body, again, besides those that we've talked about, that just are essentially sped up just by Mm. standing in the light. So we are able to be significantly more functional than most people think, you know, it's, it's definitely, there's this modern concept that human, you know, you're born with your genes and you're just stuck being like that. But of course you can change that through diet, through exercise. But again, I believe that our, our light exposure, exposure to sun is one of the absolute number, you know, top, top three, top five factors. I think it's, it's number one, but you know, that, that can allow us to basically function as a significantly higher being in, you know, other words, turning on parts of our brain that in, in some way that are dormant just by being exposed to the light. And again, there's really good research to indicate that people who are exposed to sunlight are happier when, you know, when we're exposed, anyone can know that. So imagine neurologically, if we're doing that on a regular basis, especially again in, in the summer months, because obviously certain places are in the winter, which is totally natural. But in those months when the light is available, if we get that light, that can really positively improve the function of so many different systems. And to get to you know, some of the actual um, human data, clinical data on how, how important this is, rather than just all kinds of mechanisms and, and other sort of ideas about it, there was a study that was done in Sweden that was completed just about two years ago, but it was run for decades over many, uh, it was about 20,000 Swedish women. They were analyzing their life to try to understand which, which factors in these women's life have the greatest effect on their health span and all cause mortality. So death from all sorts of different factors. And upon analyzing again, all the, all the factors that one would consider relevant in someone's lifestyle. So, or at least the majority of them, you know, diet, exercise, stress, smoking or not smoking, uh, these sorts of things, travel, you know, they're able to condense down to see what was the biggest, what had the biggest impact statistically speaking over such a big population. And the number one factor that reduced death from all causes was exposure to sunlight. And this is in Swedish women who only really get sunlight throughout the the summer months. Mm -hmm. So even in, it was even on that, it was on a magnitude of where they basically even pointed out that smoking is, or I should say sunlight exposure is on the same or even higher magnitude of the relevance of smoking in health. In other words, Mm -hmm. avoidance of sunlight 
could be as bad for, for the human body as smoking cigarettes, which is a sort of foreign concept. But, you know, based on what you're, you're explaining about circadian rhythms and sort of what we're talking about, it's actually not surprising at all because the light powers so many of these functions in our body directly besides eating food. So if, if we're never getting this light in those months when it is around for us, of course, we're going to have a, a bunch of dysfunction and increased rate of all kinds of diseases and, and so on. Yeah. How does the, you know, light, you know, we still get like light from our cell phones and the artificial light. So what, what's the difference between the natural sunlight and the artificial light? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And that I actually want to, I want to pu- push our conversation a little bit towards melatonin and that's a really good way to do it. So of course, artificial light was invented around the like late 1800s, 1879 was the year they first lit up the light bulbs at the World's Fair in Chicago, Thomas Edison was showing off his new invention. And of course, this, this was around the time of the Industrial, Re- Industrial Revolution, which was pretty much the first time in human history where, or one of the first times where humans in a large population were starting to move indoors and spend the majority of their days indoors working in factories and whatnot. And so the light bulb allowed people to extend their working hours even further into the evening. And it seemed like this great invention because, wow, you know, the sun's gone down, but because they didn't realize that so many of our systems, you know, beyond just vision are powered by light. It seemed like a great idea, you know, Oh, you have this light. Now we can see. And so now we can work later. But the interesting thing about the light bulb, it isn't just that it allows you to see that's what people, that's what we thought, but actually it's also creating some blue light, which actually keeps us awake. It it stimulates, you know, again, sort of tricks the circadian rhythm and stimulates increased production of cortisol and ACTH, these stress hormones in the evening that now allow us to sort of stay awake longer. But if you think about it in, in, a, in the sense of an energetic system, that's not going to come for free. You know, you're stimulating cortisol and you're basically forcing your mitochondria and your cells to do more work within that window. But now you're, you're basically asking the body for more energy and you're also now cutting into the body's time to sleep and repair. So right off the bat, you know, now we know that that, that was going to be, that that's damaging. And so, of course, in addition to stimulating the cortisol, what that artificial light does is suppresses that secretion and release of melatonin. Now, mm-hmm. fast forwarding, because those first lights were actually pretty, they were not that bad. They had very little blue light and a lot of red light wavelengths. And the blue is more, let's say it stimulates more oxidative damage and stress, especially if it's not coupled with red light. But then, and even up until the late 1900s, incandescent bulbs were the most common form of lighting, which again, they contain lots of red and infrared, which are the more healing wavelengths. So that was actually not that big of a deal. But when things started to really go south was when we started shifting to fluorescent lighting in workplaces, which use this, you know, tube that everyone's familiar with, filled with mercury, uh, mercury vapor, and then they shoot an electrical current in there. And then the mercury vapor fluoresces at these specific wavelengths. And uh, it creates, you know, spikes of these very thin light spikes of red, green, and blue, and then they coat the tube with white. And so it basically makes the light look pretty white, which mm-hmm. is the goal is to mimic sunlight. But so if you, if anyone's watching this and you could even put this in the show notes, if we just Google like 
spectral curve of different light bulbs, you can see that the sun's spectral curve is this, and it's like a rainbow. It's a continuous spectrum of mm. all the different colors from red to purple. And it even includes infrared and ultraviolet, which are very important for the body in ways we've discussed, but we can't even see those. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at a fluorescent tube, it has these, or an LED, well, yeah, fluorescents in particular have a really tight spikes of really specific wavelengths. So it's basically tricking the body to stay awake and be alert without all of those other wavelengths powering the tons of other biologic functions that are powered by sunlight, including again, mitochondrial function, the circadian rhythm, the production of key neurotransmitters and hormones in the brain, and then a bunch of, you know, increasing of the rate of reaction of enzymes and so on in the body. Those are, and then many other functions that we're not even aware of, at least probably haven't been discovered yet. We're just eliminating all that light that powers that, but still tricking our body to be awake. So this is, again, why it's clear to me that working under fluorescent lights for a day in an office, not only will you get tired in the afternoon, but, or just be chronically fatigued throughout the day, but it also is very stressful and, and nerve wracking. So it makes people kind of really good at office work and menial tasks, but doesn't really help people to think well, and it definitely doesn't make them healthy. And there's even studies now that show that, you know, interestingly enough, this is another tangent we could go down, but people who work indoors have higher rates of skin cancer than people who work outdoors. And there's many <laughs> studies that have shown the same thing. So mm -hmm. I believe that these lights actually contribute to those issues because it's so stressful and taxing on the body. But that mm -hmm. aside, these lights and LEDs too today have a big spike in blue light, especially the ones in our screens. If people aren't using software like Iris or Flux on their computer or, you know, the other things on their phone. So the biggest risk I believe of artificial light, besides the fact that it's causing people to think that they don't need sunlight during the day is of course at nighttime, the blue component, which is now being increased and in, in, again, in our screens and LEDs and fluorescent lights in order to keep people more awake and alert in the evening, it causes this huge increase in cortisol and stress hormones going into the evening relative to what we're supposed to have. But in particular, there's very clear evidence, even Harvard has written papers about it and articles about this, that this blue light at night suppresses the secretion of melatonin. Mm -hmm. And so as, as we sort of briefly mentioned earlier, melatonin is part of the circadian rhythm. So for proper melatonin production, it requires actually getting exposure to light throughout the morning. In particular, the ultraviolet wavelengths are important in the process of helping to generate melatonin from the precursor um, tryptophan, which becomes serotonin, which then becomes melatonin. But so not only are we not getting the morning sun stimulus for the circadian rhythm and production of these key hormones, but now at night we're getting blue light, which is destroying or disrupting the circadian rhythm even further. And causing the body to not secrete its melatonin properly. And the reason I wanted to kind of touch on this and the reason I believe this is so, so relevant is because melatonin, according to, you know, the data that I've read and there's tons of it, anyone can look up. Melatonin is the most important antioxidant molecule in the body for mm -hmm. repairing the damage, you know, oxidative damage in all of our cells and particularly in the mitochondria, which by the way, make up about 30% of the weight of, of a human according mm -hmm. to estimates that I've read, which is pretty interesting. It's that big a portion of our body. Of course, they're just like everything largely filled with water, but nonetheless, it's a pretty big portion of our cells. And so these are energy producers too, going back to the, the, the stuff we were talking about in the beginning. So anytime they don't work as well, 
we're toast. You know, for example, you're familiar with cyanide poisoning and whatnot, the, the, the chemical that was used, for example, for people to kill themselves, they would wear it on bracelet. And if they were captured in war, they would eat the cyanide. That makes the mitochondria stop functioning immediately. Mm. So anytime we, we reduce the mitochondria's function, like we can assume that bi important biological processes are going to start to falter. So on a mm. regular basis now, we're not getting the sunlight we need to make melatonin. And then we're getting the blue light that disrupts the secretion of the melatonin that we do have at night. So not only are we going to not sleep as well and not fall asleep as quickly and not sleep as deeply and not have as much deep sleep and REM sleep and all these things, but our mitochondria the next day are going to be functioning suboptimally. And you put this, if we put this over a long period of time combined with poor diet, chemical exposure, but this issue in particular, nothing else, you know, assuming someone else is living a relatively healthy lifestyle. Otherwise, this alone is enough to cause a serious either disease or just deficiency compared to how healthy and energized someone could be otherwise. Yeah, it's a, it's so like a it's a vicious like a cascading cascade uh, that you know you get this disrupted circadian rhythm at night and uh, you get poor sleep as a result of that and uh, that's going to disrupt or that's going to damage your mitochondria as well which is going to lead to suboptimal energy production and yeah it's uh, again like makes you more chronically fatigue and and so on so you, you don't even have like the other energy to do like the, all the other things that are supposed to make you healthy like exercise and so on so yeah it's, it's like a very uh overlooked aspect the uh, circadian and uh, the you know optimal optimal sleep yeah, absolutely. And there's this really cool researcher, you might be familiar with him from uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is where he now works. His name is Douglas Wallace or Dr. Doug Wallace. He's the, the guy who basically, when everyone in the 60s and after the discovery of the structure of DNA in the 50s, everyone was starting to study the mitochondria, or not, I shouldn't say mitochondria, but the genes, you know, mm -hmm. the nucleus and the genes and genetics and all this stuff, molecular biology. He was saying, you know what, I'm going to study the mitochondrial genes because it was known because mitochondria come from a different ancestor that they have their own genome. And it is interesting, out of the tens of thousands of genes in the, in the main genome, about 1,500 of them are also mitochondrial genes used, as we talked about before, to actually build the mitochondria themselves. But the 13 genes that they keep inside of them are the ones that are absolutely critical for energy production. So for example, if you think about like a, the, the construction of a power plant in a city, for example, the main blueprint for the power plant itself could be kept off site at the mayor's office, for example, but the wiring diagram, the structure of how the function of the power plant actually works has to be kept at the power plant in case of any issues or changes that need to be made and it has to be on site. And so that's sort of the difference between the mitochondrial DNA that's in the nucleus and the mitochondrial DNA that stays in the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And so as his studies evolved over time, the 98% of the United States federal budget for health is spent on studying the nuclear genes for the causes of disease. In other words, the standard assumption is that these diseases, especially the chronic diseases like, you know, uh, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, autoimmune disease, autism, depression, anxiety, and all those kinds of things, dementia and whatnot, all of those diseases that are now the biggest killers today, they're assuming it was an anatomical defect in, in the body. It's, in other words, there's an issue in the genes, and so the genes cannot be 
properly translated and transcribed into proteins and whatnot and RNA and then proteins. And so then there's an issue in the proteins and that's why we have these diseases. Hmm. Dr. Wallace started to realize, okay, well, they're not really finding anything. It's been 50 and it's just a clear fact. It's been 50, 60 years. They've been doing that same kind of research and haven't identified clear, you know, understanding of all these diseases. So he said, well, you know, we're observing that there are many mitochondrial diseases where there's an issue in energetics and not necessarily any issue in the anatomy itself, but in the energetics of the system. And so maybe these other big diseases we're facing today, maybe they're energetic issues as well. So for example, like if you have a headache, it isn't necessarily that there's something wrong with the proteins or the structure in your head. It could just be that there's a, an energetic deficiency because the brain being one of the highest energy demanding tissues along with the heart, the liver, the, the immune system, and so on. If you have a significant energy reduction, you might have, you might end up with a really bad headache, for example. Mm -hmm. So Sure enough, after doing this research now for the last 20 years, you know, aside from, from the cool stuff they're doing now, they, they were the ones who discovered, him and his team discovered that, um, for example, mitochondria go, go through maternal inheritance. So they're only passed down by females. And that's why apparently we, we, there, are only, there are two sexes and rather than just all, all of us being asexual. You know, one benefit is that we can swap DNA, we can uh, switch up our DNA, but the main reason, because that could be done within a single organism or actually, well, no, that, that's also another benefit of having two sexes. But the key is that mitochondria can only be passed down by one sex, by what we now call females, because the mitochondria cannot be mixed. Their genes can't be mixed like the nuclear genes can be mixed, because if you mix these essential genes for wiring the energetic production systems or the energy producers in a cell, then the next generation, they're not going to be able to produce energy properly. Those genes are very finely tuned is the point. And they've actually done that where they would take two different mitochondrial genomes and through laboratory means mix them together. And then the next generation, because it, it can no longer produce energy properly, it'll have acute, um, like for example, psychosis and will die at a young age. So that's one of the, you know, it's really important to keep our mitochondrial genes tuned properly. So they discovered that the maternal inheritance pattern, they also were able to use that to confirm 100% that humans did originate in Africa and the exact migration patterns that we took going out of Africa. And that can't be done with nuclear genes because again, every generation, the genes are being mixed, but mitochondrially, the genes aren't being mixed every generation. They're only accumulating small changes over time. And so they're able to actually trace all of human migration using mitochondrial genes. And so if anyone does a gene test, 23andMe, they have all these different haplotypes for mitochondria. All, they're, they're all different letters. And him and his team actually assigned every single one of those as they studied different people across the entire planet. And the, it's so fascinating. As you get to different places on the planet, the mitochondria have taken on subtle adaptations in their energy generation systems to be advantage, for example, people who live at really high altitudes in the Himalayas or the Andes have ad advantages to having significantly lower uh, atmospheric pressure and oxygen present in, in the air around them. So it's, it's really cool. But on their more recent research now, looking at these chronic diseases that we're facing that generally the Western paradigm hasn't been able to figure out in, in the medical research, they found that for sure 
in, for example, Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity, so metabolic disease, cancer, all, yeah, I said Alzheimer's already, and so on, autism as well, there's a high percentage of mutant mitochondria that can't generate energy properly, particularly in the tissues mm. that are expressing the diseases. So in other words, you can, everyone has a certain percentage of mutant mitochondria that can't generate energy well, but when you cross over a certain threshold, then you start to have a phenotype or a disease or symptoms of a sort. And so essentially the way he describes it is if you think of, for example, a blackout in a, in a power in a city, all the electricity goes out and you don't have any energy. But a brownout instead of a blackout is just when there's less voltage on the power lines rather than none. And so the equipment and devices that require the highest voltage, so things like maybe refrigerators and drying machines, washing machines, and that sort of thing, these would start to fail first. And then eventually everything would fail over time. But that's exactly in the body what's happening. When we accumulate too many mutant mitochondria or mutant mitochondrial DNAs, as they describe them, because the DNA leads to the mitochondrial structure, then we basically start to see a brownout. And the systems that require the most energy, again, it'll depend on the person's context. And they're, no one's, you know, they're not quite sure why one person would get Alzheimer's or one person would get heart disease or one person would get diabetes. But those different systems start to fail and then we have these issues. So the reason I tell this whole story is because that's what the evidence is showing, the most advanced mm -hmm. research. And so there's all these, like, for example, in the dieting world, there's lots of talk about how just getting on a healthier diet can cure all these diseases, but that's not exactly in line with this evidence. You know, if, if mm -hmm. the diets improve the mitochondria, then it is, but that's not necessarily the case. And that's why I'm so focused on the light, because it seems that this story of sunlight circadian rhythms, artificial light disrupting melatonin is super central because melatonin's one of its number one roles is to basically, in a way, repair mitochondrial DNA and repair the mitochondrial damage. And this is where, again, I was thinking of you when I listened to a podcast Dr. Wallace did recently because he's talking about, you know, the importance of mitophagy. And I was thinking, oh, I got to talk to Sim because, you know, how important is it to turn over our mitochondria, but we don't want to turn them over too much, you know, but if you're sick, you want to turn them over. But if you're in the same environment and the same lifestyle that got you sick, then you turn them over and they're just going to get destroyed again. So you need to like find the right balance of putting these things together. But yeah, yeah. that's sort of the, the whole story and how it comes together of these diseases and, and why it's so interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty uh, you know, accurate in a sense that uh, the, uh, the way or how healthy you are, it's also like a matter of epigenetics in a sense that uh, like you, like you said that you know it doesn't it, these people they get uh, the different manifestations of the different uh, diseases uh, based which is which I would think is uh, probably to a certain extent based on their genetics but it's also like a matter of the uh, you know the the environment that they're in and uh, how do their mitochondria end up uh, functioning as a result of their environment so if the environment is dysfunctional or it leads to this uh, misalignment then that's also going to just cause sickness and uh, uh, other other problems uh, related to uh, health yeah absolutely and it's i'm so glad you mentioned epigenetics because that's another one that when i first got into the paleo diet they were all talking about like epigenetics epigenetics and all this stuff and this was many years ago now and that was a fascinating concept and what Dr. Wallace and his team have been able to show, and just it's very clear, 
that mitochondria are the primary system through which all of epigenetics is mediated. And the reason why is because, for example, the nucleus is another, it's another organelle. It's a system in the body that requires energy, mm -hmm. right? So without the mitochondria producing energy, the nucleus can't do anything. And so the nucleus too is entirely dependent on energy coming from the mitochondria, just like that, you know, the story we talked about in the beginning sort of led up to the only way that that host cell can survive is it's, it's sort of delegated like a smart businessman it's delegated its energy generation to all of the mitochondria but it's still dependent on them in a sense so what what dr wallace explains is that because of this phenomenon that the nucleus is dependent on the mitochondria all of the stuff we talk about in epigenetics is ultimately mediated via the mitochondria so the environment affects mitochondria and energy production in some way and then that affects what genes are transcribed and so on. So there is this thing they call mitonuclear coaptation or coadaptation where the nucleus and the mitochondria are essentially constantly talking. And a good way to put it simply is that when the mitochondria are working well and energy production is working well, and the body is in a non-chronic, chronically stressful environment, which again, stress is you know, things that tax our system and in particular tax our energy systems because they require energy to deal with if we're in a heightened stress state. But if we're not in that kind of environment with stress, then in the mitochondria are working, then the nuclear genome is relatively quiet. It sort of is kept quiet in a sense, in the sense that we don't need to constantly be making new proteins all the time. I mean, we still are anyway, but not as much as if the mitochondria are in that chronic stress and in that chronic state of, you know, basically oxidative damage where they're, they're producing more free radicals and whatnot, then the nuclear genome is going to be much more active and creating proteins and doing all these things much more. And that's, there's some really, really interesting, good research about that phenomenon. So I'm glad you brought up epigenetics so we could sort of touch that and clarify. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, like I, w I wanted to turn back into the idea of how do you, you know, how do you protect yourself against these uh, dysfunctions and uh, how, what is like making uh, people experience this dysfunction and how can they avoid it? Yeah, it's great. So I would say that it is the biggest risk today is this indoor technology based lifestyle. So what I mean by that is the number one risk that I see is this chronic sunlight deficiency that's really diminishing the function of all of the cells and all of the organ systems in the body. So for that, what anyone can do is simply, what I recommend is going out in the morning and watching the sunrise. And if it's a cloudy, wintry place that you're living in, just go outside anyway, You know, take an hour walk or a 30 minute walk, or even just open your windows and sit by the window as the light comes up so that you can get First of all, the cold air on the face, which is going to be really great for basically waking us up, but also the light that's going to hit the eyes and the skin that will also set the circadian rhythm. So that's like the simplest first thing. Now, of course, if it's summer or if it's a sunny day, it's much easier and really beneficial to get out and actually watch the sunrise. And so that's really important going back before that, because many people now who, you know, most people today have less efficient sleep. And even, you know, I was traveling for two years, as you know, going all these different places and my, my sleep, my 
health declined as a result of chronically disrupting my circadian rhythm doing that. It was sort of like a fun and an experiment in a way, but of one that I, I became very clear was, was, uh, you know, affecting me negatively. That's why I've been settled in Mexico now for four months, which is like the longest time I've been in one place in the last two mm -hmm. years. But, um, my, my sleep has just continued to improve as I've been in one place. So I'm waking up now, for example, an hour before the sunrise naturally, which when I was in a chronic stress mode from traveling, I, my body was just begging to stay in bed, which is a great sign of, I would say, some sort of circadian disruption. You know, I do believe in the natural environment without artificial light and a healthy circadian rhythm, we would be sleeping, you know, let's say about eight hours and waking up a, a bit before sunrise. And, and of course, without artificial lighting, we wouldn't be able to stay awake very light. Like anyone who, uh, anyone who's been camping knows that if you, if it gets dark, you know, I was camping one time and it got dark around six cause it was the winter and my friends and I, we made a fire because we wanted to have some warmth. And so we had the fire going for two hours and by eight, eight thirty, someone asked like, what time is it? You know, everyone's falling asleep and it was only eight thirty. So, mm -hmm. you know, just to give perspective, if you're in nature, you're not staying up that late, even yeah. if you have fire. So that's the, that's what I was getting back to is it's really important to go to sleep early, I believe, because mm -hmm. then you can get up and get that first light or, you know, sunrise light exposure to turn the brain on in the right time. And to get to sleep early, either you can live in a dark, you know, live in a dark place and keep your lights dim, which I recommend for everyone and use only red lights at night or candles. And then of course, blue light blocking glasses come in handy there. And I recommend these. And I started a business raw optics, which of course you're familiar with sim to make mm -hmm. really great blue blocking glasses. And so, you know, we offer those that block the right wavelengths. And so one would want to wear these glasses, blue, blue blockers from sunset until the time they go to sleep to basically tell the brain, okay, the sun's gone down. I don't want any blue light hitting my eyes. And then eventually the body's going to get more tired. But so that's yeah. between that and getting up and getting a morning sun exposure. That's like the biggest thing just to set the circadian rhythm. Of course, you know, this is where you are the expert, but I always recommend people stop eating around 5 PM at the latest. Um, yeah, generally, I mean, if it's the summer, you could go a little bit later, but I still wouldn't recommend eating past like six, uh, definitely never after the sun has set, but ideally four hours before you go to bed, you're done eating. And that way the body's able to get into a proper sleep mode. And I can say from experience, if I fast or if I eat one meal a day, I am, especially because if I eat one meal a day, I'm eating usually breakfast or a midday lunch. I am so tired. Like when the evening comes around, I'm ready to go to bed. Like I'm just in a proper okay, it's time to sleep mode. So those are the things that people can do to start. And then others I would recommend, of course, as per the whole discussion in the summertime, it's and, and in the spring as well, which Europe and most of our listeners now, except those people who are in Australia, I'm assuming most of your listeners are European or North American. They're, they're basically summer is coming or spring is coming now, you know, past, mm -hmm. we're past, the, it's going to be cold maybe for a few more months, but as spring comes, start going out in the morning light and in the light, even in the middle of the day while it's the spring and, and starting to build up a tan with five, 10 or 15 minutes a day of healthy exposure. If you start from the early spring, you don't even really have to try because the sun is going to It's going to just get stronger, but so slowly and gradually that if you just go out like an hour or a day, you know, in the, in the beginning or, you know, 30 minutes on each side of your body sunbathing, you're going to get a huge benefit. And, and be able to build up so that when the summer comes around, you're ready and you're not going to burn yourself. But the key is that people don't wear sunglasses at any time, uh, mm -hmm. not wearing contacts 
And if you have to wear glasses, just wear glasses. But when you're look, like looking towards the sun early in the morning, take them off. So those are the, the standard yeah. typical recommendations that I, I offer. Yeah, it's like uh, we could do uh, an entire podcast on each every of those aspects, <laughs> like the <laughs> the sleep and uh, the fasting and uh, the cold and all those things. So that's yeah. a, that's that's a good overview in a sense that you have to do uh, you have to kind of align yourself with your environment via the light as well as the temperatures and the colds and uh, the food. Yeah, I mean to maybe make it even simpler, just for people to take away something really easy. Wear blue blocking glasses once it gets dark to protect your circadian rhythm and your sleep. Watch the sunrise in the morning or take a walk and be outside if you can't look at the sunrise in the morning, get the sun. And then three, just sunbathe on a regular basis, especially once the sun comes back and don't wear those sunglasses and stuff. And then that's, that's good. I would add, and again, I, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're a fan of cold therapy and, and that kind of thing. So I recommend that people, if they want to kind of kickstart their mitochondria, for example, even if you're in a place where it's winter, it's a huge benefit to use cold thermogenesis or cold therapy, bathing in a cold lake, river, stream, ice bath, or even cold showers are slightly less effective, but also really good. That can help, you know, kickstart the mitochondria and speed people's bodies up, especially if you're doing that when you have sun, you combine a really cold bath and then get in the sun. It just feels amazing because the cells are so efficient when we're in the you know, after being in the cold water and our skin is cooled. So we're able to much better assimilate the light after being in cold water. So it's like, you know, you could get the benefit of it an hour, I think of sunbathing in 15 minutes after having been in cold water, just from the way I feel. That's my experience. That's huge. If, if someone's living in a wintry place, you can get in the sauna a lot uh, up where you guys are from. I'm, that's the, the home of the sauna. So th those yeah. are <laughs> very beneficial. It's, it's not ultraviolet, but it's lots of infrared light which also improves the mitochondria and helps get rid of toxins and whatnot. And of course it just makes you feel amazing, especially if you do it with cold lake sauna, cold lake sauna, and then also seafood. Um, I'm not sure of your, your, you know, focus on seafood sim, but I've from the research that I've read, it seems that omega three DHA in particular is so important for building a healthy human brain. And that's why, you know, mothers pass it in their breast milk and it's essential for myelin in the nerves. And so I'm of the belief that if we consume a good amount of seafood, it's going to improve the function of everything. And in particular, from my experience, I used to be super pale before I started, uh, you know, yeah, before I got into this stuff. And in order to be able to start to get sunlight better, I think two of the key factors were eating healthy, whole seafood, not the supplements of omega-3s, and then also uh, drinking good quality spring water. I believe that was what allowed my body to go from just easily sunburning to being able to actually take a healthy tan hmm. yeah that's that's pretty interesting with the seafood it's like uh yeah fish and uh you know oysters and shellfish that are great food and pretty nutritious but the problem is that it's very you know uh, uh toxic or that, like there's a lot of pollution in a sense that is making it uh, less healthy for you so it's like a trade-off in the modern yeah. modern environment that's interesting yeah i mean i of course Right now, I'm sort of of the opinion that it is still really important to get the omega-3s, even if you are taking on a little more toxins. And the benefit of being in the sun, of course, and saunas as well, is that your body is going to be able to better detoxify. But for example, you're, I know you're spot on, and I could say from personal experience, I was thinking, oh, I'm in the sun, I should be healthier, blah, blah, blah. Thing is, I wasn't actually healthier at that time that I started eating a bunch more seafood, and I actually did increase... Uh, 
for example, my exposure to mercury significantly and brought my level up past the safe level. So I've been, you know, getting that down. And so if people do do this, you know, things like sardines are very low in mercury, generally low in toxins. And so those are very healthy and high in omega-3s. But of course, things like tuna in particular, swordfish, big predator fish would definitely not be something to eat a ton of right in the beginning. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm with you there. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask about the blue light glasses a little bit. Uh, You know, yeah, you're you're spot on in, in the sense that you could get like some random uh, Amazon pairs that come from China or something. But the problem is that they're not going to filter out the necessary wavelengths from the, uh, the light source. So you have to have like the right glasses that actually filter out the uh, wavelengths that block melatonin. Otherwise, you're just, you know, wearing these goofy glasses, but not really blocking out the, mel- the uh, blue light anyway. And you're not seeing yeah. like improvements. That's a really good point. I, I was going to even get into that. Um, so... Usually what these these uh, blue blocking glasses will do, the ones coming from Amazon or whatever it is, typically, they'll send a LED light along with the glasses so you can shine it through and see, oh, it goes onto the table, but then when I shine through the lens, it's blocked. And the thing is, it's a great gimmick, like a marketing trick, because that, that LED is usually around 405 nanometers of light. And so the blue light that's emitted by screens is around 455 nanometers. And so if one, if someone looks at a spectral chart, like the ones we were talking about earlier, you can see that the spike on an led or the big blue range is around 455 between 440 and 460 approximately. It covers that range. And so if you're blocking, for example, a hundred percent of the, of the blue light up to 420 nanometers, Sure, you're blocking certain blue light that's coming maybe from the sun, which I don't think is a good idea for all the reasons we've discussed before. But by the time you get to 440 or 455 nanometers, which is where that, again, big spike is, there's essentially no blue light being blocked by those lenses. And so for this reason, they're able to have these lenses that appear completely clear. But again, they're not blocking the relevant harmful blue wavelengths. And therefore, most clear blue blocking lenses, actually, I'll say all clear blue blocking lenses on the market are pretty much a gimmick. And so we have these lenses that are near clear. Now, for anyone who looks this up on our website, the lenses have a slightly clearer uh, look than they actually are when, when uh, they arrive. And that's just an issue with the, the photo editing. But nonetheless, if you have a lens that is completely clear, it's not reducing any of the blue light that's coming from the sources around. In order for you to know that there's blue reduction, there has to be a yellowish, even if it's very slight, a yellowish hue in the lens. And the stronger that that is, the more blue light's being filtered. And that's like base, that's basically just physics. When we remove or when the, there's all the light passing through a lens that's present on one side to the other, it's clear. That's just what, that's what clear really is. It just means none of the light's changed. So when you actually remove a meaningful portion of blue, the light that comes through the other side is, is changed. There's less of this blue. And so it's going to resemble the other colors of the spectrum more, which is going to be the rest of the blue, the green, orange, red, and yellow. So if you block all the blue light, for example, for a nighttime blue blocker, so for a daytime blue blocker, it's okay if you block, for example, only 50% of the blue light, which is what our daytime lenses do with the most harmful blue emission. But for a nighttime blue blocking lens, you want to block 100% of the blue and the majority of the green light up to 550 nanometers. And so, because all of those wavelengths have been shown to have 
some impact on melatonin, even, even those higher energy green wavelengths. And so those lenses will be orange. And then as you block into the green range, they'll even appear more reddish. And that's again, what our, uh, our night lenses are focused on. So again, it's like buyer beware, you know, you really, it's easy to just buy, Oh, blue blocker. Or you go to the glasses store and they say, Oh, would you like to add the blue blocker coating? It costs a hundred dollars, but it'll protect (laughs) your eyes, but it actually doesn't even protect. And these companies should get, honestly, they should all get sued, which would be if anyone listening to this is a lawyer and they want to make money, like go after that. (laughs) <laughs> the claims they're making. But because uh, again, if, if they're saying protect yourself from screens, but they don't block any light around 450 nanometers, they're literally outright lying. But because this is so new, such a new concept, this is like, it's going to take people like us, you know, talking about the actual science to educate people a little more where this sort of becomes mainstream knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah. And especially like, some people maybe even like some biohackers would be surprised that the green light is also suppressing melatonin so you you have to get like the the safest bet these are like the red red uh, lenses yeah of course and it's a balance again like for example some people like the true dark glasses from dave asprey's company it are you know they're super dark to the point where you can't even see anything and so that's sort of where we we draw a line where we say okay what is what you know, where is the evidence showing there's actual reduction of melatonin? And then where is it sort of potential melatonin reduction, but we, we want people to be able to still see out of our glasses. So for example, with those glasses, you know, a better way to say this is the best blue blocker, the best glasses for protection of melatonin would be like a blindfold because then you can't see any light. And of course you're going to get tired because it's completely dark. Mm-hmm. but then you're not going to be able to function in the normal world. So that's where we come in. Like we're putting the science together to know, okay, blue and green are the most impactful on melatonin. For example, there's evidence that even bright high intensity red light can affect melatonin, but it's mm-hmm. significantly less and it has to be really strong. So, you know, we're not going to block all the red light cause then you're not going to be able to see anything. There's not going to be any light left. And so that's, that's really where, why we're focused on getting the, the perfect balance of, uh, you know, circadian protection, but also being functional in the modern world. And that's why we also, you know, use frame styles that are attractive and that people like so that they're comfortable with the glasses. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, You definitely have like great glasses. And uh, I I happen to have like the uh, see-through lenses from you (laughs) that you gave me, I think like a a few years ago, but yeah, they're really good. And uh, we're going to put all the links in the show notes. So uh, if, uh, before I ask uh, my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and uh, your, all the things that you do? Yeah, thanks. So right now, Instagram is probably the best place where people could, if, if I'm going to put any updates about stuff that's going on. So my personal Instagram page is The Light Diet. And there it's just, you know, mostly just pictures of my life. But there's going to, you know, I'm going to, for example, be like, as I told you, very likely launching a podcast this year to focus more on this specific issue of mitochondria and light and so on, probably called the Light Diet Podcast. So I'll make announcements about that through my Instagram page. And then for my business, the Instagram is Ra underscore optics. That's just R-A, Ra, like the Egyptian sun god. And then raoptics.com is the website. And that's, those would be the best places for people to you know, check us out and potentially learn more. Awesome. Sounds good. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you had after sooner? Hmm. It's a very good question. Let's see. 
I think what I wish I would have had sooner, although I, I don't really like to carry any regrets, would just be to really know that putting health first is absolutely like critical. Putting the health of not just the body, but also the mind, because of course, like our life is so, you know, in some way short and can be really beautiful. But I believe, for example, the whole world that, that I'm seeing outside of me right now that I think is outside of me, the perceptions that I'm having, they're all occurring within my brain, you know? So mm -hmm. if you have a really beautiful brain, that's really healthy and robust and positively wired and so on from good thinking and meditation and healthy lifestyle and diet and exercise and sleep, then I think the whole world will just appear really beautiful on a regular basis. And much of the time I'm able to live in that state. But for example, sometimes if I'm, if I'm not kind of, you know, doing things in an optimal fashion, you know, everyone experiences this, but you go through periods of stress and periods of worry. And so I think that's, you know, that's why it's so important just prioritizing mind and, and uh, body well-being because then life can really take on this attribute of just beautiful, enjoyable, exciting experience, you know? So that's, that's to me the most, the, the best advice that I've, I've gotten and maybe wish I would have had a little sooner, but I'm 20, so I really can't complain, you know, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you are, you know, as, as well, you're quite young. Yeah, so. it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of per perspective and uh, getting like uh, the right, let's say, the right influence uh, for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I have this advice now. You know, if, if you talked <laughs> yeah. to me when I was 40, this is most likely what I would say. So Awesome. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for coming to the podcast. And yeah, you do great, great work in terms of uh, sharing the knowledge about the light and circadian rhythm. So looking forward to uh, all the future products that you're going to do. Me too. Me too. I'm so excited. I'm sure we'll do some awesome stuff together. We're the, the future, as they would say. The <laughs> yeah, yeah. For awesome. Sure. So good chatting. Yeah, I'll see you around. All right, that's it for this episode. I want to remind you again that head over to raoptics.com and use the code CBLUND to get a 10% discount on the blue blocking glasses. Other than that, thanks for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for the next one. Stay empowered.